Well, welcome to the podcast today, the Valley Hoops Insider Podcast. We've got a special guest with us today. Rocco Miller is with us. He is with Bracketeer.org, and we want to talk all about that. Uh, but so much has been going on in college basketball this week. The Division One Council met, and they decided, hey, we're going to have basketball by the 25th of November. And all of a sudden, you know, news is flying off the charts. We have uh, all of the different MTEs making announcements or not making announcements and conferences and teams uh, sending out information or delaying information. There's so much to get to, and Rocco's on top of all of it. And I expect to learn a ton from him today. Before we get to that stuff, Rocco, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about you. Uh, I, I want to say six, seven, eight years ago, you decided to become a bracketologist. How does one go about that? <laughs> Harry, it's great to be on the program, and I appreciate you having me on. Um, I'm a big fan of the Valley, uh, not only the Missouri Valley, but the Ohio Valley. I know you do an amazing job covering both leagues. Um, so, again, honored to be here. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the art and science of bracket, bracketology really uh, took off back in 1996 with the national introduction of uh, Joe Lenardi to the world. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, over the years since 96, uh, you know, it's just become a mainstay in college basketball culture. Uh, you know, it, it amazes me year in and year out how much it grows. Uh, you know, we can track all that through the website and how many people and traffic it creates and it, it, it kind of blows my mind, but it's, it, it's my geeky thing that I took, uh, you know, a real special interest to, like you said, about eight to 10 years ago uh, is when I really started becoming public about it. But well before that time, I've been a college basketball person, you know, since I was a little kid. So, and a huge fan and, and really just love the sport, um, you know, across the country. So um, I've been kind of secretly doing it, well before 10 years ago uh, and, and just kind of comparing how I did against the committee well before there was a bracket matrix or all these different ways to measure how good a bracketologist really is. Uh, so when all, when the internet kind of took off and all the different college basketball uh, outlets and resources took off, it, it created a, a cool opportunity to be a part of. And now each year, just this, um, you know, with bracketology being the foundation, uh, bracketeer.org is now, uh, evolved into even more. You know, I'm able to travel, uh, fortunately, for my, for my full-time work, and that allows me to see a lot of conferences in person throughout the year. And um, about four years ago, I joined the Writers Association, and so I'll, I'll write about the games that I'm able to, uh, to cover for the media. And uh, that, of course, helps build more relationships and do a lot more with the sport. So it's just, um, it's really cool, and, and it's been an awesome journey. You put on your website something about the one of your some of your top highlights of games or s things you've been at, and, <laughs> and one of the ones was the uh, I think it was the '98 Final Four Stanford team with Mark Madsen on it. Well, he came yeah. through. They came through St. Louis. I saw them That's in right. a regional here in St. Louis that particular year. So I, I saw that and I thought, well, okay, we have a kindred spirit because Mad Dog was kind of a crazy guy, and to be able to he root was. for him and the Cardinal back then was fun. Yeah, that's, that's a great story. Uh, I was actually, you know, not to date myself too much, but I was actually still like wrapping up high school back in the late 90s. And I, uh, you know, University of Washington is where I went to school. And, and it's also um, the program I followed the closest growing up, but they had a lot of miserable seasons. And I remember <laughs> that Stanford team coming into, uh, it was actually Key Arena because they were re renovating uh, Heckhead Pavilion where the, where the Huskies play that year. And they came into Key Arena, and I think Stanford won by like 30 or so. And I was like, this team is 
you know, unbelievably talented. Um, and so to see them go on that run and, and Mad Dog go crazy, that's, that's something I'll never forget. So it really, really neat that you were covering that that year. Yeah, my phone is ringing across the room there. I'll have to let that go. It's probably some late-breaking news story. Probably. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so you are super connected, obviously, in the left coast and the Pac-12 and those leagues out there. And there's a story was breaking this afternoon that Las Vegas might try to host something and do some things, particularly for some of those West Coast teams. What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the, just some recent news coming through that, that not only is Las Vegas preparing to be a bubble for non-conference events between the recently start, uh, announced starting date of November 25th through uh, Christmas time, but also this is an interesting caveat. They are open to host actual league play between any of the West Coast leagues here, and I think they're making that offer to the Pac-12, the Mountain West, the WAC, the Big West, the Big Sky, and um, – perhaps even the summit league. So there, there is a emerging opportunity for those leagues, you know, out West here, we don't have the luxury as uh, the Valley has, or a lot of the East coast leagues have where schools are really close together. There's, there's leagues like the big sky or, um, or even the WAC where you're across multiple time zones, very long travel distances, and they're going to have to get a lot more creative on how they actually play their league. Um, so it makes all the sense in the world for, for, I'd say, leagues like the Big Sky and the WAC, let's just use those two as an example, to take advantage of a convention hall at the Mandalay Bay Casino or the MGM Grand Arena if it's not being used, to have their leagues uh, played there and in a safe environment where they can conduct tests where they're not going to have to shut down, uh, be at more risk to shut down teams. Now, of course, Harry, you and I know uh, once we get into the, the meat of the conference schedule, that's when school will start again for, for many of these institutions. So there's going to have to be a balance. So maybe they find a week or two that works for all, all schools or a cluster of schools within the league to get some of their games in. But I think right now, uh, you know, the main thing you're hearing from most of the head coaches, you're, I'm sure you're hearing the same, is they want to get as many games in when they can and take advantage of the November 25th start date. And I'm sure it's going to be the same when we come back uh, in January for league play because you don't know at what point in the season your program might have to shut down for two weeks. If God forbid somebody uh, tests positive or there's contract tracing, not allowing you to put out a team. Um, and that could shut down a team for up to 21 days. You got the 14 day quarantine plus probably seven days to ramp up. So um, it's key for a lot of these programs, probably all programs to play as many games as soon as they can. It's going to be interesting to see how many of the leagues can actually get up and rolling and from the smaller school standpoint, can they afford the testing procedures and all those kinds of things that a lot of things that a lot of commissioners and a lot of schools are worried about? I've been talking to coaches the last couple of days and sports information directors and athletic directors and all of that. And all of them are just scrambling like crazy. Okay, these games yeah. that got crushed, what do we do about those? The games that are scheduled, can we even play them? What about our MTEs? I mean, everything is up for grabs and and uh and nobody really seems to have any answers just yet um but the key i think for people like um, we're talking to you you're a bracketologist um the the selecting of a bracket later on seems to be what's driving a lot of these questions to me it's very simple to try to say well just play all conference games and then figure it out later but the people that want the bracket to look something like the bracket of the days gone by they don't want any part of that 
Yeah, and I think it's imperative, especially for the, the smaller conferences, uh, to get those opportunities to play non-conference games from a competitive standpoint. Um, it's going to be very hard to get more than a single bid in any of the, any of the leagues that are not, you know, one of the top six or seven leagues uh, without the opportunities of non-conference. So I think at all costs, with enough time to prepare, we're still two months from the start date, plus a few days. Uh, if there is those opportunities to put together and combine events, like a lot of the MTEs were already put together uh, prior to the rearrangement. Um, if we can cluster those teams and rearrange some creative scheduling, whether it be bracketed or just pairing some teams to play while they're in the quote unquote bubble, uh, that's, that's good for college basketball, I think, in terms of playing out a, a somewhat regular season and giving leagues an opportunity to get multiple bids when they won't get that opportunity if they only play league play. So to me, that's important. Um, I, think, I think if you look at uh, the power conferences, they don't have that obligation. Uh, but there will be plenty of motivation for them to participate for financial reasons and other uh, benefits to uh, you know, be showcased during what they're calling the golden window. And they're calling it that, I think, because between November 25th and, and Christmas, 20, uh, December 25th, you've got a really solid 30 days where there's not a lot of competition. The NBA will be done. Uh, you'll have NFL on certain days of the week, but other days like Saturdays, you would have just a whole day of college basketball and get a lot of viewers. So there's a big financial incentive for, for power programs in college basketball to uh, line, line up teams there. So, yeah. And I, I think you're, to your last point that you, that you mentioned um, for the, the mid to low major schools, there is a real struggle on where they're going to fall. They, they are at the mercy of, these things coming together and trying to get included. Uh, some of these schools won't get included. They'll, they'll get excluded and they'll have to figure out their own events or they might have to play a lower amount of games. And, um, you know, that's, that's hard to see, but, it, but it's the reality of what we're dealing with here. Houston has come out and said that they would like to host. They've sent out invitations to 50 teams to see if they can get 20 to show up in Houston. And, you know, yeah. my background, a lot of my background, I, I did tons and tons of high school games. And you see these holiday tournaments all the time in our area where yeah. there's 32 teams or 16 teams and they play, they just play a million games because the loser's bracket goes all the way out to seventh place, ninth place. To me, that makes tons of sense. Get a bunch of teams bubbled up and yep. play winners, losers brackets, get five or six games in in about a week, week and a half. Uh, to me, that makes just tons of sense. Agreed. And, and I'm glad you mentioned Houston. I've been, I've been actually in touch with Rossi Karen, the uh, event organizer, over the last 24 hours. Uh, we were actually texting late last night together. And uh, that's exactly right. He's aiming to get 20 in. Uh, the, the event is a go, so that's uh, great news, I think, for, for him, especially in the city of Houston. Um, and they, they're really just trying to get those commitments. I think this 48-hour this window that we're in right now are probably going to stretch all the way to next week is crazy because I think it, it, there's this domino effect that's going to come from the top of college basketball program in terms of uh, you know, power programs all the way down to low programs to fill those spots. And, you know, he's kind of at the mercy of where those teams are going to end up and then try to get the best commitments he can. But the format's actually been announced now. Um, he told me this morning that uh, they'll have two uh, – uh, they'll split it in half. They'll have two groups of ten, and then they'll have the luxury to play between three to six games, I think it is. 
And so, you know, they, they probably have time to figure out if they want to bracket that or if they just want to schedule it strategically for, you know, television reasons or, or uh, other incentives. So we'll see how that plays out. And you're also starting to see this with the, um, you know, Orlando and Connecticut opportunities. Those are going to be mainly driven by uh, events that were already put together. Orlando's comprised of, I think, eight events all owned by ESPN. So that will have its own ESPN twist on it uh, to – um, you know, make that exciting or bracketed or it could go a lot of different ways from a format standpoint. So I'm curious to see where we land. And same thing with the Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. They're going to do something similar there where they're combining, I think, around six events. Um, uh, and a lot of that is ran through the Basketball Hall of Fame and the Gazelle Group. I told Porter Moser yesterday, I, I might just have to go get bubbled in Orlando over the holidays. But uh, not a bad place to be if you can get in there. That's right. <laughs> So the uh, yeah the ESPN events have moved all to Orlando. Those eight events, uh, you know, boy, the guys that were going to go to the Bahamas are going to go to like North Dakota or somewhere. That's right. That's a little bit of a bummer, you know. But mm -hmm. but if they can play the games, they can play, and 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 that's what I think it's all about for the young men and the teams and trying to get exposure and games in and 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 all of that. The uh, I just think there's so many different struggles, particularly for those mid-major schools. Um, the Houston event, uh, you can tell me if this is right, if I understand it right, there's going to be an entry fee for the teams to get in it, which means, you know, a Northern Iowa, a Bradley, somebody like that. And, and right. some of those teams are already in MTEs, but teams like that, they're going to have to pay a fee. And then maybe all of their testing gets taken care of, those kinds of things. It's going to be very interesting to see how all these things play out. Yeah, you're right. And, and, you know, that's kind of beyond my uh, scope of work in terms of the logistics in, involved with that. I think, I think what it's going to be is a balance, right? Like the athletic departments are going to have to look at the opportunity, you know, how much revenue can we generate or, or what's the opportunity for exposure for our program to go participate in one of these and, 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 you know, do an analysis real quick on the return on investment. Like, is it worth, you know, Southern Illinois, is it worth the investment to pay the entry fee, get a chance to play against like Oklahoma state or against anybody else that's going down to Houston? Uh, is that worth it? And, and in a lot of cases, I think it could be, it's just really going to be driven by how many commitments come from the top and then allow Missouri Valley, for example, programs to uh, be able to gain some exposure that way. The uh, I've written down here, the Dana Point Southern California Challenge. Evansville yes. is supposed to play in that. Have you heard anything about that, about that event? Yeah, I saw yesterday. I got an update from Evansville. They, it looks like um, it, it's, it's going to be a challenge to pull off, uh, especially in the current location. Uh, they may try to keep those same schools together. I think as it stood before all of this, the Dana Point Challenge still didn't have all the slots full. Um, I think there was three or four programs committed, but they were looking for another three or four. So uh, we'll see, you know, this could just be a package deal if those schools that were committed, including Evansville, uh, want to propose that they go to one of these larger bubbles, whether it be, you know, Vegas, Houston, uh, Indianapolis is another city that's gonna have a bubble it, it, for all intents and purposes, that might make even more sense. So there, there's still some options and the Valley's in a decent position, you know, being, you know, somewhere between the 10th to 12th best league each year and sometimes even better than the top 10 um, to, to be, you know, kind of in that next pecking order right after the power of five or six are, are slotted. 
when I when I think about conference play, I think bubbles make more sense. Like even like you know, we're talking about these MTEs and non-conference and all that. But I think if the Valley, if the Ohio Valley could bubble in Nashville and get a third to half of their conference games in in a couple of weeks, just right in Nashville. I mean, there's there's a college on every street corner in Nashville, and and they've got big bigger you know uh, spaces as well. To me, the conference play bubble aspect makes just a ton of sense. What do you think? I think so too. You know, there's been some really interesting proposals in that in that sense. You know, here in the Pac-12, they've talked about bringing four schools to one location every weekend. So, you know, the the OVC has the same math. You have 12 teams in the OVC, so you could do something like that as well, where you put a third of the league in one place, and a you know, you break it up into chunks of threes, and that way they stay there for five or six days. They play each other once, and then you get your three games in, and you go on to the next week. Usually you're only playing two, two games a week. That gets you three games a week. And over time, you'll build a buffer or two for any kind of uh, team shutdowns or makeup games that you'll need um, towards the end of the season. I, I, I like that model. I like your model in terms of trying to bring everybody. I think there might be some logistical issues with, um, with school and whatnot because they probably can't be away from campus longer than a certain amount of time with school in session. All of that is going to be a league by league decision, I'm sure. So um, we're going to see all this play out in different shapes and sizes nationwide, and it's it's going to be pretty compelling. Uh, the, as a bracketologist, uh, this is going to make your job even more difficult this coming spring, assuming we have a spring and a tournament and a season. Yes, uh, it, it, you're probably right. And in a weird, twisted kind of way, I, I kind of like that. Uh, just because I, I, one of the reasons I love doing the bracketology stuff is because I am, you know, deep down kind of a data geek. Uh, and, and I like being able to absorb more information and, and different ways to compare teams. At the end of the day, when the selection committee is going about their work and trying to select their 36 at-large teams, and, and even the seeding process after they've been selected, um, it's all about just comparing teams. And the more information or different ways you can contrast teams, the better off you're going to be. Now, I don't think we're going to have as much data uh, as before, which is why I agree with you. I think that's going to make the job even harder. But I do think, um, you know, with, with all these different variables going on, it's going to become way more important to actually watch the teams play and not just count on uh, the net and, and other metrics, right? Because it will be less of a sample size. These, you know, the, the season's going to be strong from 31 games to probably 27. And if, if we'll have team shutdowns, I'm sure we'll have one or two somewhere. Hopefully, hopefully not much more than that. But if, if that happens, you can still be eligible for the NCAA tournament with only uh, as little as 13 games. That's the new low. So uh, in those examples, it's going to be very difficult for the committee. They've said that, as you mentioned, those game numbers, and then there's all kinds of stories floating out there. Uh, the tournament will be bigger. The tournament will be smaller. The tournament will be whatever. Uh, Dan Gavitt has said over and over and over, we want to have our normal tournament. What do you think the likelihood of uh, is that there will be a different number or a different kind of, not format, but a different number? Yeah, so the last I've heard on this was last night, and there was some active conversations from some sources that I've heard from uh, just going down to the old 64 uh, because the first four element would just be an extra layer of complication. 
And the NCAA, ultimately, their main responsibility is hosting the NCAA tournament. They don't have the jurisdiction over the bubbles. They can make recommendations. They can set up the start date and all those things. But they don't have the jurisdiction like they do over the NCAA tournament. So from a logistics standpoint, I think the uh, momentum is heading towards going to 64 and just eliminating the first four. And then we're just doing it the way we did it you know, prior to that. So going back about 10 to 15 years. Um, that, to me, seems to make sense. But obviously, you know, we, the 68 has been working pretty good. I, I certainly don't want it to be larger than 68 personally. I, I think it, there, there's a, a specialness in being selected and, and earning the right to be in the tournament. Um, so if it's 64, I guess we'll just have to trim four more off the, off the puzzle, but a lot, lot to be determined there still. So you're not a fan of the 357 that the ACC was throwing <laughs> out there. That was a little preposterous. Uh, but, uh, you know, as a mid-major guy, I mean, I'm dyed-in-the-wool mid-major guy. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and, and part of this whole process bothers me. You know, I'm going to complain to a bracketologist here. That yeah. I, I don't doubt the data that tells me that the fourth-place team in the Big Ten is better than the second-place team in the Missouri Valley. Don't doubt that. Uh, what I do doubt is their right to be seated higher because the other team earned something that they didn't earn. Uh, talk to me about those different philosophies. Harry, I'm, I'm on your side. I, I'm a lover of, of the mid-major um, type of basketball, style of basketball. The programs and rosters are built differently. I think when you get into the tournament that shows up in March, uh, I, so – you know, there's, there's so many, I can't say like completely predictable, but there's, you have a good feeling sometimes when you take like a 500 or sub 500 power conference team. I, I hate to pick on any one school, but I, I can remember like an NC state team or, or some really average Texas teams that might just barely squeak in because all the, all the ways that the selection committee has built criteria to select favored them. And I think there's some inherent, inherent disadvantages for leagues like the Valley because of that. But you can't tell me, like, the team that makes it all the way to Arch Madness and loses in the final wouldn't, A, be able to hang with a team like that or beat them. Uh, because what ends up happening, you know, and, and you know this better than anybody probably, is you, you get into January and February and these teams really start to come together and they really start to show what they're all about. Uh, you know, there's, especially today with all the turnover in college basketball, um, almost every program's having a big amount of turnover on, you know, who their starting five is going to be, what their rotation looks like, who, who's going to take the big shot that, you know, down the stretch, all those things are getting sorted out throughout the season. So by the time we finally get to February, March, you're seeing teams at their peak and then other teams have started to fall apart. So that's where like my NC state and Texas examples, they had a great strong non-conference season and then they fell apart in conference. Well, the majority of the viewers, even if they're, a big 12 or ACC fan, I think a lot of those people still would agree with us that we'd rather see like a Bradley be in the tournament or a Northern Iowa be in the tournament because those, those kids are tough. They win 80% of their games and they've got a chance to win two games and go to the sweet 16. And it, it, it seems like at a much higher success rate than a, than a very mediocre power conference team. Two years ago, the Ohio Valley sent two teams to the tournament and both teams won a game and those right. are the little old OVC teams. Uh, and the Valley, Missouri Valley Conference has won, I think, nine out of their last ten first-round games, no matter who they were playing, you know. And so 
those two leagues, even though the OVC would be ranked a lot lower than the Missouri Valley Conference, they've proven they could do some damage um, on the national stage. And by the way, the OVC is going to be loaded this year. At a, as a yep. OVC conference, there are going to be light years better than people are used to seeing them. They, they have four, five, six teams that are really going to be nasty this year. Um, when I when I think about the NCAA tournament and people like and people that I really like and respect Gary Parish and those kind of guys, yeah. and and they obviously have a big school bent. And I've interviewed Gary and Gary's been at Arch Madness. He's not like it. It's not like he ignores you know the mid majors. But he yeah. said in a tweet the other day, listen, if your team is good, they're going to make it no matter what level you're in. They're going to get in the tournament. Well, the year the Loyola went to the Final Four, they wouldn't have made the tournament. Right. And so. I just hate the fact that teams that really deserve to be there can't get there. I, I 100% agree. I mean, it, if there was anything I could do to influence the process in any way, I would, that would be my first order of business, to be honest with you. I, would, I mean, it's, it's probably never going to happen in my lifetime, but it's, it would be a dream <laughs> to be on the committee. Uh, and, you know, that, I think there's just every time they kind of revise the selection committee, it favors the money more and more. And, it's unfortunate uh, because guys like you and I, we just care about the basketball and we're, we've been following this probably our whole lives. And so it, I think a lot of the, the college basketball heartbeat, you know, the fans, the pulse, um, besides the people that just come on board and start watching in March, the guys that are following it all year long and, and the ladies that are following it all, all year long, we want to see the best possible teams, the best possible games. We don't care what the names on the jerseys say. We just want to see quality uh, hard-fought basketball games and you know last year I got to cover a, a really big game in the Southern Conference between Furman and East Tennessee State and it was for first place at the end of the year and I had covered um, games you know mid-major and major games throughout the year I, I did not see any other game with near that level of intensity I mean every kid uh, on the court played every possession in like it, like it was the last basketball game they were ever going to play. The, both teams on the bench, they were completely into it and going crazy, like from the opening tip, both Furman and East Tennessee State. And you see that kind of spirit and passion in the Valley, especially in Arch Madness. You see it, you know, even when you see those uh, championship games with Belmont and Murray State, those are the, some of the most intense basketball games you'll watch all year, including the tournament. And so if you can't appreciate that and you can't appreciate how good these players are, I mean, it's just not – it's just it's hard to see, you know, from a selection standpoint. And I'd love to do anything I can to to stick up and be a voice for the, uh, for, you know, for the programs that deserve it. So, as a bracketologist, so do you get to know those other guys, and do you snipe at each other behind the scenes? Never on, in public, of course. Uh, but I've interviewed Jerry Palm. I've talked to Joe Lenardi, you know, those guys. And, and so they're, you know, at the big level, they are the competitors, yeah. right? At CBS yeah. against ESPN. They have to somehow prove out who's best. But uh, you, your website says that you're, you know, you've been ranked in the top X of all bracketologists. I didn't know there were that many bracketologists. I thought there was like four, you know. And so <laughs> anyway, the, uh, so, but do you get to know those guys and compare philosophies or, or, or uh, how you go about what you do? That's a really good question. I, I think the most of the heat for bracketologists in general, especially for those two individuals, is, is from all the fan bases. You know, every time you put a bracket post up, you're going to have those first four teams out. And it doesn't matter what four teams you put in that column, you're going to get heat from all four fan bases, right? Um, so, so much of the time is spent trying to respond to those folks. 
at, at my level, I'm a little bit uh, luckier because I don't have to deal with as much heat. I try to um, make this an educational thing. Uh, I think there's so, uh, so much to be learned through doing bracket projections uh, in terms of why your team should be in and why your team should be not in. And then there's the other part of it, which is a psychology uh, exercise, right? Like I, I, I kind of have in my gut who I think the best 36 at large teams in and how I want to see them personally, individually, and as a basketball fan. But when I actually go through the exercise myself, I'm going through a psychology uh, exercise and I'm imagining 12 guys in a room debating each team and comparing each team. And so that's how I've been able to get more and more accurate over the years. And, um, you know, so just to answer your question, now, the, there's a website called The Bracket Matrix. It's gotten pretty popular over the last handful of years. And they track every, anybody on the internet that's even putting a bracket out there, even if it's just once a year or every week. And then they, they actually grade you. Um, so that's what some of those rankings are based on. And ultimately, our, our final test is, of course, Selection Sunday. So, you know, every bracketologist that's involved with that will scramble and put their final bracket up within that final hour before the show starts. So it's a pretty exciting day. And uh, after the show's over, we get to see what our scores were and how we ranked for the year. Um, so through that, like I've, I've actually learned, uh, and that's been around now for about eight or nine years. Um, I've built a lot of friendships and relationships in the, uh, in the quote unquote industry. Um, and it's, it's been really cool. It's been educational. Everybody supports each other. Um, I think we all have been following each other. We all help each other where we can. We've even had an idea, uh, and unfortunately it hasn't come together in the last couple of years, where we're going to get together in early February and do a mock uh, selection committee. Now, I am part of uh, Hoops HD as well, where we do a mock selection committee during championship week, and that's about 10 people through the Hoops HD website. Uh, and so it's, any chance there is to do an exercise like that, it's valuable for all of us because it helps us simulate and understand what the room's going through. When I talked to Jerry Palm, I remember we were sitting outside at a restaurant in Nashville because we were both, you know, whatever okay. was going on. And, yeah. uh, and I said to him, I said, people think you actually care about this, meaning like, like he cares about it, but he's doing what you just said, all the science, all the, he doesn't care who's in or out. I mean, he, as a fan, he might care. He's a Purdue guy, right. but but he is just trying to guess or do the science to figure out what the selection committee is doing. And he gets hate mail and, and all of that kind of nonsense. And he's just like, Hey, I, I don't sure. Yes. I want your team in. However, they ain't getting in. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny. I think Palm brings a really good perspective just from a historical standpoint. You know, he's got every piece of information you could ever want about, how often a team with X record with X resume gets X seed or even gets selected. Right. And he'll be able to tell you that in two seconds. I've gotten pretty strong in that area myself, just learning from guys like Palm. And I think Lenardi um, over the year, I mean, Lenardi's an absolute genius. You get a chance to talk to him. I, I'm sure you probably have. Uh, I've, I've been emailing with him this summer. Um, he, uh, he knows what he's doing. I, I think there could be, you know, I guess just between us and, the, and our listeners here, um, I, I think there could be some network motivation sometimes to uh, tweak his last four in, last four out if there's a game coming up on ESPN. Uh, that's just a personal opinion. Joe hasn't confirmed that with me, and I don't think he's allowed to. But um, there's some fun stuff they do throughout the year. But you'll always notice if you see their very final uh, bracket 
on Selection Sunday, they're going to put their best effort out there, no matter what they're telling you throughout the season. Yeah, and you guys are, none of you that do it really heavy are going to be radically different because you're all looking at the same metrics and guessing at history and all those kinds of things. So, so when that rating comes out, uh, does it come down to most of the time kind of seeding and placement versus teams in or out? Because even the teams in or out aren't going to vary that greatly, are they? No, they're not. So, yeah, the, there's three components to the scoring. Uh, the first one, of course, is did they get in or not? You get a point for that. The, uh, the next one is if you get their exact seed correctly, I believe it's two points. And then, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's three points for that. And then I think if you're within one seed, you get two points. I might be mixing those up, but those are the three criteria. Now, if, if I were to say, uh, you know, Loyola Chicago is going to be a nine seed and they end up getting 11, I don't get, a, I don't get any additional points for that except for the one point they give you because you got uh, them being in the field. What about so what that, city they're in or what, what, like, do you have to get nine and in North Carolina or just a nine? <laughs> See, I, Harry, I wish. And if I could, uh, if I was in charge of the scoring, I would add that because I put way too much extra thought in those things. And so if people are really uh, interested in what city their school is going to go to, I actually probably waste 30 to 60 or if, if not more minutes every single time I do an exercise on, on those types of logistics. Because the reason I started doing it is because I really wanted fans to come and check it out and have a good sense like, okay, Wichita State fan, I, I want to know where we're going and if I can start packing and, and counting. That's why I look somewhere. at it. I'm trying to figure out what, yeah. what regional I'm going to. So Harry, keep checking mine because I'm, I'm putting way too much thought into that stuff and I'm glad there's an audience for it. I, I think there absolutely is because because of that very reason. Like every year, I'm angling like which which Valley team, which OVC team, which former Valley team is Mizzou <laughs> going to be somewhere? You know, I'm, I'm thinking just regionally in terms of the people that I write for. You know, what's going to be the most yeah. strategic place? Absolutely, yeah. Maybe next year, you know, if I start getting some information on that, like concrete, I can get an email list started and and at least get the writers up to speed. I, I last year I was. They, you know, they've been doing that um, selection preview show in February on CBS, like the second Saturday, I think it is. Dan Warlock puts it on and then, you know, Dan Gavitt comes on and talks about, um, you know, and it's, it's that preview where they do the top 16. Anyway, uh, I was on the media call last year and got to ask some questions that I've been wondering forever on it. And I was able to stay in touch with Dan Warlock up until March, which was great. And then through our Hoops HD podcast that I participated on, uh, we were able to interview Mike O'Brien from Toledo, who's the vice chair, uh, and learned a lot that way. So, yeah, as more and more, I'm, I'm figuring more stuff, stuff out on this, and we should stay in contact. Super interesting what you guys all do. I can't even fathom it. I'm, I, I feel like I'm a numbers <laughs> geek, and when I get into what you guys do, my, my eyes gloss over. They roll in the back of my head. I forget, forget it. I'm just going to go to Rocco's website, you know, just – <laughs> Here's well, what I did last year. I was going to announce a number of the Missouri Valley, the Arch Madness games. And so I decided to rate the referees all through the conference season so that I'd have stats on the refs once we got to Arch Madness. Like this guy is kind of a hanging judge and this guy, nah, he's lenient. And, and so, <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of stuff I do. I'm crazy. I like that. I mean, it's hard to get information like that too. Sometimes they won't tell you who's going to ref the game, right? Until you get right. 
get to the venue and everything? Yeah. Yeah. So, so we try. I'm like I said, I'm a nutcase. I'm like you. I'm a junkie, and I just keep looking for more. That's just the way it works. It is um, the way it works. As the uh, this always happens to me, stuff pops up in my window, and now we're back up again, again, good again. Um, before I let you go. Uh, we have all of this information flooding out to us these days now with, okay, the MTEs, the non-conference, all that stuff, and it's all kind of coming out piece by piece. Uh, what do you think is next? Like, will there be a big rollout Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday next week of the various MTEs, or, or do you think it's going to be just like today was? Oh, hey, Houston's going to do something. Oh, Las Vegas is going to do something. Oh, you know, Duke, what was it? Duke might opt out of one of the big things and play in something else that's got uh, – social injustice background, you know, messaging and so forth. I think a lot of stuff's still radically undone. Definitely radically undone still. I, I think it's going to be molded like clay over time. It's probably going to take a handful of weeks, I would say, if I had to guess. Uh, I think by next week, if you're trying to, you know, set some expectations, uh, we'll start to see some schools uh, commit. I'm sure some contracts might start to get signed. Um, I think they the lowest hanging fruit at this point is, uh, you know, like Maui just announced they're going to Asheville. Mm -hmm. Atlantis just announced they're going to South Dakota. Get those contracts signed. There, but even within those, you have issues because both of those events, great examples. You have Pac-12 schools. You have Stanford going to Maui event, and you have um, Utah going to the Atlantis event. Now, the Pac-12 still hasn't even uh, reversed their vote on playing before January 1st. Now, we believe because the – Quidel partnership here uh, for testing and all campuses are supposed to have access to these tests by the end of September that they're going to reverse that, but that doesn't solve any of the questions for non-conference play. Um, and what are these events going to be able to offer in terms of testing? Is that going to meet a league like the PAC 12 standards? You know, so there's all these different questions, right? I was, I was also uh, hearing from Cleveland state earlier, a, a team there in the horizon league kind of on the low end of the totem pole, uh, saying, you know, they're part of the Paradise Jam. They're supposed to be going to Washington, D.C. now, but they don't even have clearance from their school or their health directors. So there, there are more variables than just saying, yep, we're in. Now that's how the coaches are going to talk about it. The coaches are going to say, <laughs> yeah, we're in. Put us down. Don't lose our spot. But like, you know, if, if a team like uh, Utah, right, in, in South Dakota doesn't sign a contract in the next couple of weeks because all of this prevents it, how long does the event give them to, to hold that place until they call somebody else? So that's why there's, this is going to take time and they're going to need some sort of commitment. Maybe they'll have to sign some sort of uh, non-disclosure agreements uh, before they sign the contract, something that holds them to it. Um, but fortunately for all of us, uh, we're, we're still over two months from the 25th. Uh, as we've seen in college football, things can happen fast. Um, you know, they've had to reschedule some games and put new games together. So, uh, and the really good news, I think, is the college basketball community is way tighter than, than the college football community, in my opinion. Uh, all these coaches, all these players, all these administrators know each other well. They work together well. Uh, Harry, I don't know if you're at the Final Four every year. I've been going the last few years. You see it when you're at the conference and leading up to the Final Four. Everybody knows everybody. It's a really tight-knit community. So things will happen and come together quickly as soon as we have some of these other uh, elements established. Yeah, I talked to one of the people putting together the Cayman Islands thing, which is going to be in Niceville, Florida. I don't even know if I said that properly. But, <laughs> uh, uh, but they said their big holdup is Pac-12 teams uh, because they don't know what they're going to be able to do with the Pac-12 squads. 
So yeah, all those things will be unfolding before us. So, so what's next for you? What will you be writing about or podcasting out about over the next couple of days? Yeah, the next couple of days, just continue to do what I'm doing. Uh, you know, the main thing, Harry, you know, for our listeners here is um, I have a post that I set up on uh, yesterday. And what I'm doing I've is- I've been I'm reading just, it. Oh, awesome. So I've been refreshing that as, much, as soon as I get updates. So if you want to come back to that, when, you know, in the morning, at night, whenever you have time, just come and check it out. Uh, I'm adding more notes to each league and to the events as I get it. And uh, I'll stay on top of that as best I can. We do have some weekend things planned, my wife and I. So <laughs> I, I, might, I might be doing a roundup on Sunday night. So uh, yeah, but continue to check back for that. And I'll pass along things through Twitter uh, once I find out myself. It's bracketeer.org, org versus com. I don't, I don't understand that part, but good for you. Well, hey, uh, we're a nonprofit uh, at this point. So the site's 100% free. Appreciate uh, everybody coming and checking it out. And then once the uh, season gets going, we'll, we, uh, we'll have a full uh, preseason bracketology exercise done. And then after January, we update the site Thursdays and Sundays with new uh, exercises. Well, I'm, I'm not for profit, too, just not by choice. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Rocco Miller, we appreciate your time today and all your great work. Man, I love following you on Twitter. There's so much great stuff that you just roll out constantly, and uh, I get smarter because I follow you on Twitter. And so for, for my, the, the people that read my site, listen to our podcast, I want to really encourage them to follow you on Twitter. Also, go to bracketeer.org. Because people like us here in the Midwest and the heartland, you know, that love hoops in general, but love the OVC, MVC, and how it affects everything else, they'll get a lot from you. I really appreciate all that you do. Harry, the feeling is mutual. I've been following you for the last handful of years. It's been outstanding. Keep doing what you're doing. And I appreciate you having me on. This has been awesome. Really appreciate it. That's Rocco Miller. Thanks for tuning in to this particular podcast. Remember, since you've been there, Make it a better place. We'll see you again real soon.